When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Diz Tate on her debut novel, Bruce. Diz Tate grew up in Florida and lives in London. Her fiction has been published in Granta, The Stinging Fly, The Tangerine and No Tokens Journal. And today we're going to be talking about her debut novel, which is Bruce. Diz, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Um, so it's about a girl who goes missing from a small suburban town in Florida, um, kind of in the 2000s, which is where I grew up as well. And it's told from the perspective of a group of 13-year-old girls and one boy who have kind of watched the missing girl a little bit obsessively over the years and they start to investigate kind of where and why she's disappeared. So yeah, and it's kind of, it's told in the collective voice because that felt like the best and kind of only accurate way to represent the sort of manic shared joy of that time as well as the sort of fear and pressure-filled mentality of those friendships so yeah Yeah, tell us something more about that sort of narrative voice not the whole book because there's first person sections cut through Mm. the book that that sort of revisit the kids later on in life but the majority of the book is told as this sort of sort of a greek chorus of of the of the kids all narrating at the same time in this sort of we voice first person plural voice and it's it's really interesting so tell us more about why you chose to do that uh yeah it was kind of a a long process of elimination like I knew that I wanted to write about being 13 I was really fascinated about that age and about Florida at that time and how those themes seem to naturally mirror and relate to each other so I was working on this for sort of years just on my own and I tried a lot of different voices so I wrote it in first person and then I wrote it in third person went back to first um and the whole time I kept rereading it and there was something in there that just wasn't quite true like the narrator was very insecure and analytical and very imitative of sort of all the social movements and behaviors around her which felt very true to that age but it didn't feel like the whole truth and 
sort of my memory of being 13 was the sense of complete freedom and performance and sort of this real like extreme sense of being alive for the first time and really noticing things and pushing each other and daring each other to make life exciting even though we were very constrained in the limitations of our environment and our neighborhoods and where we could actually travel to. So when I found the Wee Boys, they just had this kind of strength to them. And it was so much easier to represent like the humor and the outrageousness of them. And I actually, I, the reason I started writing it in the Wee Boys, though, I do have to kind of give a shout out was because I read this story in the New Yorker by a writer called Mariana Enrique called Our Lady of the Quarry. And that was about a group of teenage girls who were obsessed with an older boy. And it just had this extremely kind of menacing, but also truthful, I think, representation of how kind of first love and obsession and friendship feels. Like it's very, it's scary. And it's not when you when someone is scared i don't think they represent that love like particularly sweetly or succinctly or tenderly sometimes it can come across as cruel and intense so when i found that voice it was a way for me to represent okay they're vulnerable they're innocent they're scared but they're also very powerful and very obnoxious <laughs> and kind of fearless in their way as well I want to talk about the setting. Like I said, you you grew up in Florida. You've mentioned that. And and I happen to know that that is Orlando. Um, mm -hmm. There's a part of this book that also sort of gives that away in that they visit one of the characters in one of their future sections visits what is obviously the um, the Holy Land experience, the, um, the religious um, theme park that's Disney, which I'll forever regret not managing to visit because it, it closed down during COVID. Tell us something about the real because the actual location of the story is like a sort of very heightened fictionalized version of this which we'll talk about in a second but what is the actual location on which this is based like um well it is based on orlando but it's i guess the most honest basis for it was this um kind of apartment complex that a lot of my friends lived in i used to go and spend kind of weekends there when i was in 7th grade and we were 13 and it felt like i think there were sort of four of them who lived there and we had this when i went there we had this kind of sense of freedom that i really really remember that we would just kind of wander around this apartment complex and we would go to the pool or we'd go to the vending machine or there was a dock that led to this huge lake that obviously no one could ever swim in because there's alligators everywhere and across the way you could see the theme parks and you could see like when there were firework displays at certain times of the year and there was also like the only other place you could walk to was the walmart that used to be down this like massive highway so that was all kind of based in real life. But because I'd been away from Florida for a long time, like when we grew up there, my family were just there on temporary visas. So I was always sort of a slight outsider kind of observing the experience. And I was so in love with it, I think, in a way that my friends who grew up there maybe were slightly more disillusioned by it. But I saw it as this kind of cinematic setting. I was kind of already in awe of it as a child. And then when I left older, I felt like 
I didn't want to make it realistic because it was so stretched and strange and um, idealized in my memory, maybe into a sort of exaggerated version that it felt to me that it naturally made sense to make it slightly more surreal. So what's the, um, then the location that the story actually, the actual location that the story takes place then, it feels much more, as you said, like a, a surreal, almost like a sort of, not a stage set exactly, but like, you know, the, the local environs as a lake and an apartment complex and um, a, mm-hmm. a abandoned show home from an abandoned um, construction site and what is obviously like a, a, a nicer gated community next to it. Tell us something about the actual setting of the novel yeah so I think I'm really interested in kind of giving yourself limits as a writer I think when you go all in sometimes like the story can just really wander away from you so I think after I'd got to about three or four drafts I was like okay you know they're 13 like their world is small let me literally map out the locations that they're gonna have access to And I think just kind of growing up in Florida, what's really fascinating about it is it is this very, like there's a huge amount of themes that are very just naturally symbolic in the landscape that's really useful for a writer because you don't necessarily have to analyze them. You can just present them as they are. Like there will be a gated community with a massive white wall and someone who's hired to patrol the gates. And then next to it will be maybe like a rundown motel on the outskirts of Disney that, you know, um, kind of dilapidated, or you'll have these construction sites that are half made that lost funding. So they're just kind of existing in this kind of limbo world. So all those um, themes of inequality And also, you know, with Florida, there's no hiding from the sense that it's a very there's been a huge amount of development there in the last hundred years, but it's all built on this incredibly fragile land. You know, you do have floods that come up from underneath the ground and hurricanes that sweep through and shake your house. And you'll have alligators, you know, very, very visible in the lakes. Um, Like if you let a dog out of your house, you will see an alligator rise up above the water, kind of ready to strike it. And so there's this sense that you're living in a place that's much older and stranger and more ancient and more powerful than you are, which I think maybe living in a city, those things are more hidden from you. And I think that naturally to me coincided with how you feel when you're 13, because you're no longer a child, like you're no longer able to totally believe in the stories that your parents might have spun you or sort of fairy tales. But you're starting to understand sort of more ideas about what the world is (laughs) and how it actually functions. So those things are just really useful as a writer, like as a setting, it's kind of incomparable. It's an incomparable place to grow up and it's a great place to write about as well. And there are, as you said, I mean, the reality of life is that there are wild animals that can kill you living like right outside your door. And in this story, they're used in, I mean, both a sort of metaphorical way and there are literal, you know, literal monsters in the story. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of like, you know, there's they think there's a monster in the lake, for instance. And, and it seems like 
more you know more supernatural than just a gator yeah i think for me um something that's really interesting to use is this idea that i wanted to there's a really good george saunders quote that i love which is um sometimes to represent an emotional truth you have to violate reality and i think for me when i was representing kind of darker things that occur to these girls and this boy like in this book I was very I wanted to represent how it would actually feel like a kind of release of um, this rage at being misunderstood which is you know if you describe that realistically it would be kind of silly (laughs) you know it wouldn't come across and I wanted to represent I was like okay let me give them something that feels true to the feeling and I think when you're 13 like at such an interesting time because your brain is sort of half formed like you know you're still half believing in fairy tales half believing in horror movies and I think like those symbols of horror it's kind of the classic like I think this kind of will to escape is kind of a classic like both coming of age and horror trope um this idea that something's kind of chasing you that you can't escape and you realize like you can run but you can't ever really get out of the the haunted house space. I think having and stretching what already exists in Florida was just a way of kind of playing with the props that were already available to me and kind of me getting all I could get out of them. And it was all about, yeah, just kind of trying to represent emotions fully, truthfully in a way that I couldn't if I just described things realistically. And it was also a way of kind of giving that strength and that power back to the girls because I wasn't really interested in describing, you know, <laughs> something horrible in a realistic way. I was just more interested in how they felt about it and how like I could kind of release them from it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Diz Tate and we're talking about her debut novel, Roots. And Diz, we haven't talked about any of the characters in depth yet. So let's start with Sammy and tell us she's the girl that disappears and that our chorus is observing, um, has been observing prior to the disappearance. Tell us something more about who she is. Yeah, so Sammy is a pretty fun character. Uh, she is the daughter of a, a televangelist preacher and his wife. And I think for her, it was all about kind of, she is like pure rebellion to me and someone who was very constrained in this very kind of extreme conservative way. And it's about how she reacts against that. But she's also very mysterious in her workings. And I think is trying to carve out a kind of path for herself and just kind of, you know, behave in a way that's very, I don't know, like relentless and expressive and creative. And I think she really inspires kind of the younger group who look up to her as a source of guidance like as this kind of idea that okay you don't have to be maybe beautiful or so appealing to be loved you can be maybe something a little stranger and more unique and there's a character called eddie who sammy and the next character i want to talk about who is mia and and her her mother there's a sort of love triangle i guess between the, between these two characters and yeah so mia tell us something about who she is so mia i think is pressured in a different way her mom works at a kind of kids get famous stage school so she's constrained in a different but equally extreme way to kind of be this perfect um, blonde-looking girl. And I think Mia represents more of a ruthlessness and more of a kind of violence, like kind of knowing what she needs to do to succeed. So doing it to the kind of ultimate way. And in that way, you know, she kind of shoots herself on the foot a little bit. Basically, like all these characters, because they're all young characters, they're all kind of struggling to be loved and performing a kind of all performing different routines and struggles to ultimately try and get that love, but also protect themselves. And I think none of them feel particularly loved in the environments they're in um they don't feel particularly protected maybe or admired or encouraged and that's the kind of um expression of love that I think really sort of kills me with its honesty I think love that is not communicated well love that's communicated fiercely or cruelly or in the style of self-protection um, so I think Mia is kind of a representation of basically another form of that. Like she's trying really hard to present as like sweet and beautiful, but underneath is kind of knowing how much fight that takes. And she's very, very afraid of being left alone. So I think, yeah, she's constantly reacting against that. I want to come back to the um, the, the fame school in a moment, but something you just said, like these these girls all feel abandoned and unprotected and we see glimpses of their mothers but hardly ever fathers the fathers are either 
dead or you know just left or completely absent yeah I think that was just kind of a reflection of where I grew up like there was it was mainly mothers and it was a lot of single mothers around and the dads would kind of sort of pop back like supporting roles like occasionally but often had sort of left the state for whatever reason or um, had other families or other lives and yeah so I was just kind of interested in this sort of um, society of women and how they're all kind of hunting for the same acceptance or the same attention and yeah I know obviously it's very kind of exaggerated but I think once I started I was like once I kind of had all these mothers I was like okay I've got the chorus of mothers I've got the chorus of the kids and I was like if I throw a dad in there she's gonna mess up my balance so the dads will come in in the next book I think I said I wanted to talk about the um, Star Search, which is the um, the school that um, Mia's mother runs. And we see at one point in the book a, um, a, a large audition in a mall. And these girls, it seems like I, I was reminded reading the book most of all of, because of the location as well, of, of the film, The Florida Project. But these girls seem at a slightly higher sort of economic bracket than, the, than you know, the kids and the families in that film. I, I, I hesitate to say middle class, but they certainly seem like not dirt poor. But at the same time, they have very limited horizons. And it seems like becoming famous is the only conceivable way out of this situation that they can see. Tell us something more about the um, this allure of fame in the book. Yeah, I think... Um... I think ultimately the theme of the book is this kind of wanting to escape. And I think what you say about limited horizons, but it's kind of like the reality is a limited horizon, but your imagination is so active that the world, it's like, if I can imagine a limitless world, how can I not access it? And I think for them, you know, if you're not maybe the most beautiful kid, you're not the smartest kid, you don't have, you know, money, then the idea is that fame is this kind of equalizer for them. They're like, oh, okay, if I can just make myself beautiful enough, then I'll be discovered and my life will change and I'll be plucked out of the mall and, you know, taken to a big city and everyone will shine a bright light on me and applaud me, <laughs> you know? And I think that's very addictive to them in the way that like taking a big gamble is addictive, even though that it's you know, as they get older, they're not going to believe that anymore. And that's going to be a kind of crushing defeat for them. But I think in this particular moment, there's still a path and it's like, oh, if I want it badly enough, I'll make it happen. So I think, yeah, Star Search, it was a way of representing to me kind of almost like a religious belief in miracles. This is the way I can make a spectacular life out of a life that is hard and difficult and challenging and where they feel alone I think it's also this idea that um if you're famous you're never going to be alone I think it kind of goes like a deeper root of that as well and they're kind of hunting for this sort of I don't know guarantee that you never get in a life that is that you'll always be loved and if you're loved by more people then you know that love means more. <laughs> and I think that's something they'll learn as they get older, which I hope comes in with the first person things a bit, is this kind of unlearning of those desires and wants. 
but at this time I mean I just find that desire so heartbreaking and so like funny to me and I think it is still something that's shared by kids today like I worked as a, a teaching assistant here in secondary schools in the UK for a long time while I was writing this book and it was still this idea that kids were like setting up you know huge dreams and often via mediums of YouTube or TikTok and you know but the sad reality is that they pretty wouldn't aren't going to get noticed but it was this idea that, that was the quickest and most accessible way to again kind of escape your own life we've talked about the narrative collective of girls as a um, of, of children because there's one boy as a collective as a group but we haven't really done that much talking about them individually and they are all indeed you know named individuals because they have their own separate later on chapter a little you know their their first person chapter in the future um but tell us something briefly about a couple of the girls yeah they're all individuals you've got um Jody and Hazel are sisters and who grow up with a kind of they all have slightly wayward but loving mothers in their own <laughs> way. And I think especially um Hazel's one I really like. She's sort of like the whiny little sister. Um, but I think as they get older, um, she kind of returns to the sister to be um somewhat reunited in the face of an extreme kind of conspiratorial shared experience of horror um and then there's Layla who's sort of the one who maybe has the slight edge of beauty over the others so she gets somewhat um envied um but then kind of you see that that beauty maybe doesn't lead to the most profitable of places <laughs> in real life um there's Isabel who has the experience at my fictionalized uh holy land in Florida I think through all their kind of individual stories I wanted to show that they'd all built these individual lives and in kind of clumsy imperfect still learning ways they were still reaching out towards each other and trying to understand a truth of their childhood that could teach them something in their adult lives like I think when I look back on being 13 it's a an age I feel very like tenderly inside me like almost it's like a bruise that I don't, like, don't want to hit <laughs> but in that way I think it offers a lot of um, wisdom to how you kind of react as an adult and can provide a lot of empathy towards um, younger people today so yeah they're my they're my girls. And my boy, Christian, as well. He's a waiter, like I was for many years, so I have a special soft spot for him. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the part where Mia and Sammy are recruiting girls and boys for the, um, the Star Search classes that Mia's mother runs. So this is the part when my group of narrators are hoping that they'll get picked. Mia and Sammy recruited girls for the star search class. We watched them carefully. We desperately wanted to be picked. We tracked them around the mall and the grocery store and at the movies. We counted how many star search business cards they had in their back pockets, checking they're enough for all of us. They secretly, we believed any one of us had what it took. We all believed we were the one. We knew this would be the end of us and we did not care. We wanted to be loved, but this was not enough. 
We wanted to be loved the most. We hovered close by Sammy, by Mia. We wore brighter and brighter outfits. Sometimes we pretended to bump into them to get them to at least look at us, but their eyes flitted past us and away, even when we yelled, oh my god, sorry, right into their ears. We dreamed of their colorful nails winding through our hair, telling us what we suspected the world wanted to say, but for some reason could not articulate. You're like, really pretty. No one's ever told you that? No way. You should model. You should be on TV. We watched who they picked and wondered what it was those girls had that we did not. We blamed our noses, our hips, our cheeks, our teeth, our hair. We practiced ways to enchant the girls. There was nothing we would not sacrifice for their attention. We studied their nail polish, trying to detect a pattern. Lilac to hot pink to turquoise lasted for weeks, and then burgundy was abandoned for baby blue within a day. We spent a lot of time at the pharmacy, matching shades to names. Pinky Promise, Sugar Fix, Birthday Suit, Malibu Peach, Electrocute. What were they trying to say to the world, but especially to us? We plucked the polish from the shelves and painted our nails in the fluorescent bathroom before replacing the bottles. We spread our hands against our legs and admired them all day long. We tried so hard. We quietly copied. It was our first time being quiet doing anything, and we were ashamed, but we could not help it. We wanted to be like them, to become ever louder and brighter, but we could feel their future slipping through our fingers because we were not stupid. We could tell who was going to peak early and we were not. Even when we were happy, even when we reassured each other we were really living, there was a feeling lying in us that we were not. We squashed our faces against the glass of our own lives. Is this it, we asked? Are we having fun like they have fun? Are we in love like they are in love? We filled up our days, following them, watching them, waiting to be invited in. We ran from the truth that the answer was in the question. We were not, and never would be, satisfied. So I've been talking to Diz Tate. We've been talking about her debut novel, Brutes, which is out in the UK from Faber. Diz, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me. That was cool. (laughs) This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 